Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Jordan Goldrich is joining us from San Diego. And he was referred to me by a very good friend, Michael Johnson. And Jordan, good day to you. How are you doing? I am doing fine. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Greg. Well, it's a pleasure having you on. And we're going to be talking about your new book called Workplace Warrior. Um, it's people skills for the no bullshit executive. And you wrote it along with co-author Walter G. Meyer. And for my listeners, uh, if you want to get a free excerpt from this book, just go to workplacewarrior.com. That's workplacewarrior.com. And you can download a free excerpt there. Also, if you want to learn more about Jordan, which we're going to tell you a little bit more about his background here in a minute. Um, you can just go to Jordan Goldrich, that's G-O-L-D-R-I-C-H dot com, uh, to get more information about his offerings and the business that he's got. His consulting practice and coaching practice is there. Uh, but Jordan, I'm going to let my listeners know a tad bit about you. Uh, Jordan uh, leverages his background as a chief operations officer, professional certified coach, master corporate executive coach, and licensed clinical social worker to partner with senior executives to drive results while, while developing themselves, their teams, and their organizations. His clients benefit from his ability to help them create direct alignment and trust. His understanding of warriors has been influenced by the work with the Honor Foundation, a nonprofit organization focused on helping Navy SEALs, Green Berets, and other special force communities transition to civilian workplace. Jordan has over 35 years of experience working successfully as a coach, consultant, advisor uh, with Fortune 500 corporations, closely held and family-owned businesses, government and nonprofit organizations, and he has an MAED counseling, and a master's in social work. Well, it's a pleasure having you on, and I'm, I'm really happy that uh, Michael, our friend, uh, actually linked us together. And this is a great book um, for executives. It certainly is something that they should look at, especially depending on their leadership style. And you say, as no bullshit executive, what are the three things that you believe motivate them why do you believe that they are so effective at doing their jobs, just workplace warriors in general? Because that's kind of how you start this book off. Yeah, thank you. Uh, actually, workplace warrior is a subset of no bullshit executive, and it's the mo- it's the most masterful. So, workplace warrior, I use I use the ethos of the Navy SEALs to describe them. They they have an uncommon desire to succeed. They take charge, they lead their team, they accomplish the mission, and they're never out of the fight. And that is one of the two reasons. It's their ethos, it's their core value. The other is that very often they come from a culture that's kind of loud. I mentioned to you when we met before that I grew up in a very loud New York family. And uh, most of my life I've been having to deal with that, including I once lost a job because of it. So. It's partly their culture, and it's partly their drive for success. 
So you're saying that the uh, workplace warriors are no bullshit executives, that they motivate themselves and that's the way they do it. Can you speak, if you would, about and give advice uh, to do the least you can do? And what are the two meanings associated with that? You talk about it in the book, and it, it seems a bit contradictory when you just read it like that. Sure. Thank you. So. One of the things I know about myself, number one, and about most of the people that I coach who are labeled or experienced as bullies, as jerks, and some of the other interesting names that get used to describe these people, is that they have a conversation in their head that says, yes, I should be respectful. And there's also another conversation that says, I can't believe that you're more concerned about my tone of voice and the way I'm talking than you are about the fact that these people are not performing or that they're not honest or whatever it happens to be. Also, they believe that the pressure they're getting to change their communication style is politically correct bull. And so the first use of the least you can do is that I'm saying to them, if you absolutely believe that, that there is no reason why you should change your leadership style, then my job is to help you protect yourself in our politically correct, overprotective environment. However, if I do my job well, I'll convince you that it's the least you can do to change your style in the other sense of the word. So, for instance, if somebody who is in a wheelchair asked you to help them across the street, most people would do it. And if on the other side of the street, they said, let me pay you, you would say, no, that, that was the least I could do. So the second meaning is that it's the right thing to do. And that's really what I'm going for. I believe that there are a number of reasons why it is the right thing to do, even though I also believe that there's a lot of political correctness out there and there's a lot of, uh, of overprotectiveness out there. Mm-hmm. So you're helping the no bullshit executive um, actually make sure they don't get themselves in trouble, one. And then two, you say the least they can do is really try and change themselves and change their style. And I think that is a, a really good thing uh, that people can pull out of this book. And then you tell people how. And as you mentioned a minute ago, Um, You tell a great story about being fired from a job as a financial analyst, and there was a little twist in that story, and you found out that you were set up for the firing, that this really wasn't wasn't of your doing. I'd like you to briefly tell the story because there's a lesson there and the outcome that actually came as a result of that. Yeah. So I was – the chief operations officer of a small healthcare company, which we grew from four employees to 65 and something like an 85, 800% revenue increase, and then sold it to a large insurance company. And about three years into it, I got a call from my boss. I was sitting in my office and she said, would you come down and see me? So I walked down the hall, and sitting with her was the vice president of human resources, whose office was three and a half hours away. And being the uh, quick study that I am, I knew this was not a good thing. So, in fact, they proceeded to fire me for mismanaging my budget. 
The next week, I bumped into the woman from the finance function who had been my consultant on my budget, and she walked over to me in a coffee shop and said, Jordan, I owe you an apology. And I said, why? And she said, well, you know how for the last three, four months, you've been telling me that there's something wrong with your overhead, and I've been looking at it at you like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, yeah. And she said, and you know how you asked me at least twice for a breakdown of your overhead, and I never gave it to you. And I said, yeah. And she said, well, I did know what was wrong, but I was told by our boss that if I gave it to you, I would lose my job. So sort of a kick in the stomach, a little bit in shock, but not completely. Uh, as I sat outside in my car in what was at the time 90-degree weather, uh, I realized that I had known that she wanted more deference for me, and by she I mean my boss, and that I had seen her do stuff like this before, and that I I just was very direct and and. I wasn't profane, I wasn't unprofessional, but you could certainly tell from my tone of voice that uh, I was challenging her, and I did mm -hmm. it both in meetings and privately. So basically, she fired me because she wanted more respect, which is kind of ironic, I think. Thinking even further, I realized that this had been an issue my whole life. I had certainly had other managers, supervisors, mentors, and a therapist or two tell me that I need to be more tactful and diplomatic. Mm -hmm. And I had pretty much dis dismissed it for the reasons that, you, uh, that I identified before, the kinds of things that they think. So at that point, I made a commitment that it's time to change. Well, it's, it's, I find it really interesting frequently when people write books, right? Especially authors like yourself. We often write about most what we need to learn. And um, so what you're telling the listeners here is through your own hard uh, battles that you fought along the way, if that's what you want to call them, uh, you've really learned what it's like to not only have this level of diplomacy, but, but to be able to do it and uh, to be able to find, create a better work environment. And you mentioned a minute ago uh, when we first came on, that you grew up in what's referred to as loud and a straight talk family family is what you say in the book. And yes. your uncle at one point of your, you, you pointed out your political opinion to your uncle during a dinner, I think it was. And he said, you're a moron. And um, obviously that that's okay. That was okay for you because you were in a family, but in a workplace situation that might not be okay. What was your takeaway from growing up in such an opinionated and outspoken family? Because I have this same experience personally myself. I grew up in a Jewish family like yours, and we used to just tell it like it was. And when people would come over for dinner, they were like, they were in awe. They went, oh, my God, listen to the way this family talks. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, I think I have some of what you got. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it's, I think it's ethnic families, actually. I grew up in a city housing project, and there were a lot of Italian families and Irish families. And my observation is that uh, it's, it's ethnic as well as Jewish. Mm -hmm. I agree. I'd agree. So what was your takeaway from growing up in such an opinionated and outspoken family? 
Well, the, the takeaway was that I had a conflicting message in my head. My parents believed that everyone should be treated with respect. And at the same time, they believed that you, don't, you, you shouldn't be treated with respect if you don't deserve it. So we had both of those messages. And I guess there was, now that I'm talking about it, there was a third message underneath, which is, you know, don't be so sensitive if I'm talking to you this way. So I really did not, I, I, I really didn't get that I had a paradoxical or a conflicting set of messages in my head until that moment when I forced myself to think about it after I was fired, because one choice was I could have felt victimized for the next 10 years. This, this boss really got me. And on the other hand, I hate feeling victimized. So I decided I needed to take responsibility for it. And in thinking about it, I realized what I had taken was a mixed message. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's true here about just no bullshit executives in general. And you outline the characteristics and personality types of no bullshit executives as experiencing less than great performance from others, that they are capable and competent, but they have underlying doubts about their competence and they have high expectations of other. What are these four types of no bullshit executives that you talk about in the book? Because it was fascinating to me. There, there's a little bit of a conundrum there, right? Yes. Yeah. So the first, the first type is the warrior, and, and the warrior is the master. Uh, the warrior is almost never disrespectful. It's always about behavior. And although none of us are perfect human beings, so sometimes they get irritated or they may say something, but for the most part, uh, my, my model that I use in the book for them is I'm still a fan of the uh, one of the longest running shows on TV and NCIS and now NCIS Los Angeles. So the, the, the male model for that is Gibbs on uh, NCIS and then Hetty on, uh, on NCIS Los Angeles. And both of them are very direct, very performance-driven. They're able to be compassionate briefly when they need to be, but there's no messing around. The second group I refer to is the scientist. And the scientists typically are researchers, engineers, uh, and other type, you know, t biologists, that sort of thing. And typically, they are much more focused on solving big puzzles than they are connecting emotionally. And so a lot of times they're experienced by other people as disrespectful or not available or something like that. And, and, and often they are not exhibiting the same kind of behavior. It's their failure to connect. The third group I call the abrasive executive. And I, I think I fit in that category. Typically, their intention is not to hurt people. Their self-esteem is very, very attached to performance. And when their teams are not performing, they, they don't feel good about themselves. And as you mentioned, they may have some underlying doubts about themselves that get triggered, so they experience it as an attack. What we know now is that people experience threats to their self-esteem with the same kind of physiological response as if somebody's holding a knife to your throat. 
they strike out. So in some ways, their defensive behavior is a def- their I'm sorry, their abrasive behavior is a defensive response to feeling attacked. And then the third group, I I hate calling people names. I really worked with uh, a, a number of folks trying to come up with a different name, but I, I just ended up calling them sociopaths. And those are people who enjoy hurting other people. And there's a small group of people uh, in the workforce and in life who really take pleasure in hurting people. Uh, I think in the general population, it's somewhat under 5%. My coaching colleagues agree with me that there's probably a higher percentage of them in the C-suite. So maybe it's 10%, 15%, or even 20%. But still, most of the people that you run into... Uh, do not genuine do not take pleasure in hurting people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you talked about this abrasive executive. That's what you called yourself, um, and you say that they have a warrior spirit, but they're not warriors yet. Yeah. Um, what do they need to change to become true warriors, in your estimation? And also, if you would. Speak with the listeners about the warrior self-assessment in the book. You have an assessment kind of midway through the book. Um, and I, th- I thought that that is truly a good way for people to kind of determine where they fit. Yes. So as I launch into this, I'd like to give credit where credit is due. I had this book completely written and ready to go when I started doing volunteer work for the Honor Foundation, which is a found, which at the time was helping Navy SEALs transition to the civilian workforce. Now they also work with Marine Raiders and all the other special operations forces. And that was where I got introduced to the Navy SEALs ethos. So I now use the Navy SEALs ethos to describe what is a warrior. And Most of the no-bullshit executives have a number of the commitments that the Navy SEALs have. So, for instance, I'll, I'll just give you a couple. I have an uncommon desire to succeed. I take charge, lead my teammates, and accomplish the mission. I demand discipline. I'm never out of the fight. I have uncompromising integrity. My loyalty is beyond reproach, which is where we start getting into some of them that they may not have. As I looked at the Navy SEALs ethos, I realized that the greatest warriors in the world, besides those things at the front, which the no bullshit executive has, also commits to, I expect to lead and be led. I lead by example in all situations. I humbly serve the ability to control my emotions and my actions, regardless of circumstance, sets me apart. I place the welfare and security of others before my own and a number of others. So what happened was that I realized that what we typically do with these folks is we tell them that you need to change your behavior because you're a disrespectful, bad person. And that what's missing is that we need their warrior spirit. We live in very crazy, volatile, complex times. We need people with that kind of drive to have our organizations be successful. And what I do is I challenge them to be better warriors, to to Mm -hmm. incorporate all of the elements of the Navy SEALs ethos. And that that is what makes them 
a warrior, you know, uh, you're saying that they're abrasive. They might not have that be a warrior spirit, or they may have the warrior spirit, but they're not warriors yet. And you it's mentioned not, it's that, le- you know, it, Greg, it's less that they're not warriors yet. It's more that they are not full warriors. That not they full warriors. The, yeah. Okay. Okay. Now you mentioned that a no bullshit executive's failure to perform or reach a goal or accomplish an initiative is really a lack of alignment in the organization. And I'm sure many of our people listening understand this concept of lack of alignment. Um, and their failure to connect input from the entire value chain. And I thought yes. that part was really uh, a big point here that you were making in, in the book. How would you advise the no bullshit executive to better assess the situation so that his or her success is almost guaranteed versus them missing this big element, which is input from the entire value chain. I think, you know, look, an executive can kind of sometimes live in that bubble, but the good executives get down in the dirt and they look at every element of the value chain. They look at every element of everything so they can connect it. I know uh, probably a really good example, and he died yesterday, was Jack Walsh. Uh, GE fame, he was definitely a no bullshit executive, right? Um, His style was very abrasive um, and he was known for that, but he got, pardon me, shit done, right? So talk with you if you would about the value chain and the importance if these people would really like to have success guaranteed. Yes, one of one of my first. Let me just give a personal story. One of my first coaches, uh, and I'm going to honor him. He passed away in the last couple of weeks after a long battle with cancer. Uh, Louis Spain was a continuous process improvement specialist at Roar Industries, which was one of the big defense contractors. And I met him. He was dating a friend of mine, and he started talking about continuous process improvement. And I asked him, I was now, we had about 15 or 16 employees at our uh, rapidly growing little company. And I really wanted to apply continuous process improvement to the service industry, mine, rather than uh, manufacturing. And one of the things he said to me was, uh, just to shortcut a lot of conversation, he said to me, look, there's one thing you need to do. Before you tell anybody to change anything that they're doing, they get to tell you why it won't work. You're going to tell the garbage man to change the way he picks up the garbage. The garbage man gets to tell you why it won't work. You're going to tell the receptionist to change the way the receptionist answers the phone. The receptionist gets to tell you why it won't work. And then he said... And if you're not going to do that, two things are going to happen. Number one, I'm going to quit. And number two, you're going to get beaten up. And so there's a double message in this. He didn't mean he was really going to beat me up. Uh, But he had had that conversation with me numerous times. And because of my family background, he really needed to talk to me to get it. So I started implementing that. We were in the middle of a process change or a, uh, yeah, process change. And so I got everybody in the room and I said, tell me, tell me what I'm missing. Tell me why this won't work. And about an hour and a half later, I walked out with about 80 reasons why it wouldn't work. A lot of which came from the administrative staff, 
who, who knew the system much better than I did and who had implemented my directives even though they knew it wouldn't work. So this really comes from the understanding that we got from originally W. Edwards Deming, who worked with uh, Toyota and started Continuous Process Improvement, now called Lean and Six Sigma, that unless you can get everybody working on the process, on the system, then you are going to fail. And that is one of the reasons why it's the least you can do to change your style and stop telling people what they should do without listening to them. So that, that in a nutshell is the piece. By the way, for me, when I learned that and I figured it out, what I realized was that, the, that my goal was to be successful. And by the way, I, I did have some imposter syndrome. I did worry that I wasn't the real thing. And so once I realized I could be more successful that way, I realized absolutely I'm going to do this. The side effect was everybody felt respected. So that in a nutshell is why we need to, you need to change your approach if what you're doing is telling people what to do in a way that's experienced as demeaning and you sound like you don't want to hear what they have to say. I think that's great advice, and that's a great story that you told around that as well because it really accentuates the fact of, you know, continuous process improvement, not only, but that's what you have to be focused on. And I love what Tom Rath said yesterday, just to add to that. He said, you know, if you woke up every morning and you said, what is it that I'm doing to help another person? Period. Nothing else. Right? Because I think sometimes we wake up with that that chip on our shoulder or whatever it might be, or we're having a bad day. But the key is, he says, if you were to look at that every day, that would be uh, make the workplace an amazing place. Now you speak about a concept called hard and soft power. What's the difference between these two types of power and a no bullshit that a no bullshit executive can use? And how would one integrate a balance between these two types of power? Yes. And unbelievably, I'm sitting here not remembering the name of the person who coined that term. Uh, He was a political analyst who talked about hard and soft power in terms of national national security and international politics. But hard power is driving for results, holding people accountable. Uh, And by holding people accountable is, you know, you're gone if if this doesn't work, that kind of approach. Uh, And soft power is more support, nurturing, development, uh, compassion. And we live in a time when the conversation in the leadership literature is much more focused on soft power. His And my argument would be that you need both. So if you are only in the soft power side, if you are only around understanding people, compassion, teaching them, training them, mentoring them, developing them, then what happens is there's about 5 to 10% of the workplace that has, for instance, personality disorders. No matter what you do, they're not going to do the right thing. And if you can't 
deal with them if you can't hold them accountable and if you can't let them go pretty quickly when you start seeing those kinds of behaviors, then what happens is you lose the respect of your high performers and you create all kinds of difficulty in the system. So if you were all the way over on hard power, you're not going to be effective. And if you're all the way over on soft power, you're not going to be effective. You need to have some kind of balance in the middle. Great way to put that. Um, and I think you need to have that bit of, you know, as you say, the no bullshit executive, but you also need to be compassionate. And that leads us to this next little statement you made in the book. Um, you went to an executive coaching conference about a year ago, you said in the book, and heard a keynote speaker, Joel Barker. Barker stated in the talk that Charles Dar- Darwin did not originally say survival of the fittest, which yes. everybody walks around thinking. He said that it was survival of the most fit. Can you speak about the distinction between the two and what impact this had on you? Because it seems to, when I read the book, have had an impact on you as an executive and a professional. Yeah. So that was really a, a great moment for, for me. It was really more about five or six years ago maybe more. And what really struck me, as I understand what he said, it was, he said survival, it wasn't survival of the fittest, it was survival of the fit. I've done some research on it, and I have discovered that in some places Darwin changed what he said and actually did say survival of the fittest. However, uh, Barker's point, as I understood it, was that survival of the fit does not imply survival of the fittest implies somebody conquering someone else. Survival of the fit involves the ability to be agile, to adapt, and to survive. So you could be in a situation, for instance, with large carnivorous animals, and you may find that there are small uh, microorganisms living on them. Those microorganisms are not stronger, they're not more fit, you know, they're not the fittest, but because they can adapt, they survive. So in the same sense, we need people, we need all kinds of people. It's not just warriors. We also need people who are connectors. We need people who uh, are uh, implementers. We need all kinds of people in order to be successful. It's not just the fittest. It's who can adapt and who can provide value. Yes, and and that story that you told in the book really had an, an impact on you. And it leads me to this last question, and we'll wrap up the interview here. But you state that Buddhist philosophy and meditation practices have made a significant contribution to changing the wiring of your own brain. Um, You cite the Dalai Lama's book, The Art of Happiness, and he says, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you yourself want to be happy, practice compassion. What can compassion uh, for self and for others do to transform an organization in your estimation, Jordan? Well, the person at the head of the organization sets the culture. So if that person at the head of the organization has a very harsh critic in their head and underlying it self-doubt, 
their tendency is to be more defensive when people present information that doesn't fit or there's some reason why performance is problematic and they tend to attack. And that then gets in the way of the continuous process improvement, lean, uh, all the information that you need in order to better run the organization. It, it makes people not trust. It makes people protect themselves, and you don't hear what you need to hear. So on some level, it boils down to there's a voice in your head, which for most people has your best interest at heart. In my case, it was my parents who had some very harsh judgments of me when I didn't perform well. And what I ultimately had to do was develop compassion for myself, which means recognizing that I'm in pain or suffering and wanting to do something to alleviate that pain. And so as I have tried to work on myself and recognize that I'm an imperfect human being and that I will make mistakes and that the goal is fixing them and moving forward as opposed to beating myself up, even if that voice in my head has the best intentions, then I'm less likely to do that to other people. And so, again, what we see in systems theory and even the, the great entrepreneurs talk about fail fast. Get out there, try something, fail fast. If what happens in your organizational culture is somebody fails, makes a mistake, and everybody jumps on them, you're not going to have innovation. You're not going to have development. And so that's how those two things hang together. I, I now talk about it as that one of my missions on the planet is to cultivate compassion for myself and others when my brain is telling me they don't deserve it. Well, obviously, with your background, and it's very evident, you can see that you've transmuted many aspects of your personality and that you are a much more compassionate leader yourself, uh, but also still have that no bullshit executive in you that wants to get things done. And I think that it's the blending of the two. And that's what you bring for people in this book. And for my listeners, um, we've been on with Jordan Goldrich. He's the author of this new book called Workplace Warrior, uh, People Skills for the No Bullshit Executive. And if you want to get a free excerpt of this book, just go to workplacewarrior.com. And there you will see a place where you enter your name and email address and it'll give you access to an excerpt from the book. Better yet, we'll put a link in the blog You can go directly to Amazon and purchase this book. And then if you want to learn more about Jordan himself and his services and his company besides the book, um, you can go to Jordan Goldrich. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-G-O-L-D-R-I-C-H.com, where you can click on uh, his banner, uh, learn more. He's got some media there. He's got information about the book, the services that he offers, and his blog. Jordan, a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth and spending some time with our listeners to give them a better understanding about what it is like to be the no-bullshit warrior um, and also at the same time uh, have some compassion in your life. Is there anything that you'd like to wrap up to tell our listeners uh, before we wrap the rest of this podcast? Well, 
I'd like to acknowledge that you that you read the book and asked some really deep questions. I really appreciate that, and I really appreciate the questions that you asked got us into some uh, depth that we don't usually get into. And uh, I guess what I would like to say is uh, cultivate compassion for people that your brain is telling you don't deserve it. Well, that's a good thing to do. And for you, because of your meditation and your practices, I'll say namaste. And I look forward to spending some more time with you, considering you live right here in beautiful San Diego. Thanks for being on, Jordan. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Wes Lindquist, the author of a new book entitled The Playbook to Managing Your Business by the Numbers. Please listen to podcast number 772, where Wes and Greg speak about the importance of knowing your organization's finances and having a well-developed process for forecasting, budgeting, and projecting cash flow that can make all the difference between you being profitable and losing money. If you want to learn more about Wes Lindquist and his new book, please go to www.thenumbersedge.com. That's thenumbersedge.com where you can learn how to improve success in business by following the playbook and download a sample of his new book. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this podcast with author Wes Lindquist about his new book, The Playbook to Managing Your Business by the Numbers.